Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today we have Eric. Hello. Sophie. Hey, everybody. And a guest that we'll be introducing shortly. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. First, we wanted to just talk about some community news. Uh, so lots of times, maybe we should take a moment to just do that at the top of the show when we're talking about conferences or anything like that coming up. But right now, uh, as of this recording, so as yesterday was the January the 6th, so we're recording this on the 7th. Yesterday was announced that a company called Nubank, which is a financial digital financial institution in Brazil, has acquired Platformatech. And in case you hadn't heard this before, uh, just we wanted to give some resources and a little bit of highlights to what this means. Uh, so Platformatech, as you probably know, is the consultancy that uh, hires and, and pays for this, the salaries and the time for people to work on Elixir full-time. So uh, Jose Valim is one of those members there. He's a founding member of the consultancy. And so that's, so then, you know, obviously there's some concern like, oh no, what's going to happen? Does this mean this company is going to be acquiring the Elixir trademarks? You know, that kind of a thing. So uh, there was a smattering of news announcements. So we wanted to put those all in the show notes. So you can go and find those and, and kind of just get up to speed and comfortable with things. But I just want to talk briefly about what that means uh, to you guys and what you've seen and, and heard about that. Uh, yeah, so I guess as far as I can tell, uh, everything. Um, so one of the things that we will link uh, mentions that the Elixir uh, trademarks or, and all the source and all that will be shoved off to the Elixir core team. So that's being peeled off from platform tech. So like, I think that's, that's pretty great. Um, same with all the other open source that platform tech did. Um, so yeah, it seems, seems good from, <laughs> from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, one of the things like mentioning that, uh, about the trademarks, uh, you know, when you, when Oracle bought Java, they took all the trademarks and then Oracle owns the trademarks to anything that's Java, that is a release of Java, that the artwork, anything like that. So they're wanting specifically to not do that with the acquisition of Platformatech. So Platformatech nor Newbank uh, New will own any of those trademarks. They'll be turning them over in, into the community and how that's going to happen what they said they'll work out over the next few weeks. Uh, but what's interesting also is that a lot of the members, the core team members, are spread out among many different companies. Uh, so you have uh, like Chris McCord and uh, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, all these different groups and Erlang Solutions, and they are all uh, like Chris McCord is with Dockyard. So you have all these different companies that have a vested interest in the success of Elixir, and they hire and, and spend and uh, pay to have people spend their time as core team members of Elixir. And Jose has said in a, an Elixir forum post, which we have linked in the show notes, uh, that, that he is going to continue in the same capacity, uh, being able to spend some of his time, uh, his like uh, kind of official work time, working on uh, Elixir as well. So I don't see any reason to have any concern, uh, but if anyone does have some concern, it's some, something you can check out in these resources. And they, uh, Jose had specifically a blog post talking about the impact to public libraries, open source libraries, you know, separate from Elixir, 
like uh, you know some of the smaller libraries and things that they have in Rails too, and just how that they are going to transition those uh, trademarks and assets to community members and current maintainers and things like that. So I don't think there's much more to say about that unless anyone wants to jump in and say something. All right, well, just wanted to get you guys all informed and aware of that in case you hadn't already heard or seen that and uh, with some resources to follow up with. All right, well, let's jump into the show. Today, we are joined with our special guest, Evedni Wu. Evedni, could you introduce yourself and kind of tell us where, what, where you work and kind of what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a programmer and I mainly program currently in Elixir and some JavaScript as well. So I work at a company specializing in education technology software. And um, I'm on a team uh, of four programmers and we all write Elixir applications. Very cool. I tend to like working in smaller teams as well. I was wondering if you uh, have worked in larger teams or smaller teams and if you have a preference. I would say it depends on what your goals are. I have found historically, if you're on a small team, but you have a specific mission to do a specific thing, then it's, it's a good arrangement. While if, if you're on a larger team, then the stakes are higher, there are more dependencies, there are more communication pathways, and as a result, you may have to spend more energy and more time to achieve the same goal. However, one of, the, one of the drawbacks of a smaller team is that sustainability could be a challenge for these teams because as the teams are smaller, um, knowledge can be siloed within individuals and a smaller team may not have the right amount of resources to invest in knowledge management or, as I say, basically just writing history. So, so this is specifically a challenge for smaller teams. That's true. I've seen that as well. Uh, well, we invited you on today because you had some interesting articles and uh, a library that I think is very interesting. I wanted people to be aware of uh, it being available, and, and I'd love to hear about how it was created and some of the story behind it. So what can you tell us about the Pacmatic Library? The Pacmatic Library is an amalgamation of multiple known things that we have already used in our applications in the past. And its main purpose is to provide a seamless download experience for large archives. So by large archives, I mean large zip files, which may contain hundreds or thousands of constituent files, each of a significant size. The preparation of these zip files usually require these files to be first downloaded to the host that is used for zipping and serving the zip file. And with Pacmatic, we kind of eliminate that step by serving a stream which pulls the content from these sources asynchronously and in real time as a user downloads. So the end result is that the user is able to click a button to download and start the download immediately with virtually no lag in between. Obviously, um, the work is still going on in the background as a user downloads to grab additional bytes from these sources and to compress these bytes and to stream these bytes to the user's computer. But that happens asynchronously and in parallel to the already ongoing download. So it becomes imperceptible to the user and makes for a better experience. So when you were creating this, was the idea or was your purpose to be using it like as part of a Phoenix application or more of a, like a desktop kind of situation where the user is 
getting the files to their machine directly like that way? Um, well, it's mainly for use in browsers because if, you're, you, if you already have a desktop application, then that application can already do certain things to mask latency or to provide better file management. While if you're using a browser, then really you don't have additional file management capabilities. So a Phoenix application, for example, is the perfect, um, perfect host for the Pacmatic library, so to say. And in fact, in production, we do use it in Phoenix applications. Cool. I would love to hear what kind of problems you were solving or just that you were encountered where you were dealing with these really large files. Uh, because, you know, there are people out there right now who are listening and saying, you know, I've got some really large files I'm going to deal with. And they might be, they might be like, oh, well, I want to learn about this. You know, and then other people, you know, like myself, it's like right now I don't have this situation, but it's one of those things like I want to be aware of this. Uh, so I love streams. Elixir has streams, which are a really neat feature. Um, I've talked about them in my Thinking Elixir course. Uh, but, and, and so I think it's awesome that you're able to stream and start accessing data through an HTTP request without having the full file present. And so I'm just curious, like what kind of problems prompted you to have to do this? So it's really based on user experience because we do have applications that routinely take in 50, 100, or 200 files per component or per page. And the user must be able to download all of these files in one go. So we already have this kind of problem. And in certain other applications that um, other teams at my company work on, they sometimes have much larger problems where they might have to generate reports and they have to generate like 600 or a dozen reports in one go and have all the reports make, uh, made available for download as a big compressed bundle. So really for us, the main issue is in effective management of a large number of files. It's, it just happens that the way we solved the problem also was very amenable to dealing with large files, just simply due to how we have solved the problem. I can go into more details if you would like. Yeah, I would love to hear kind of how this works. Just to give people a sense of scale, when you say really large files, you kind of mentioned it before, but so are we talking about like gigabytes of files or kind of what mm -hmm. is the size you're talking about? So the size of the files we're talking about. So let's say in a world without Pacmatic where you are generating your own zip file based on files already on disk, then you're limited by two things. One, the format, and two, the available disk, disk space. So the format is the first thing to consider because the zip file format has been out for several decades. And there are many, many versions of the zip specification. Normally, when you, when you talk about zip files, you're really talking about zip32 or basically zip before zip64. And this old version of zip specification has an upper limit on number of files and an upper limit on the size of files that can be contained in these archives. I believe it's on, on a point of gigabytes. So if you have a like 16 gigabyte file and you want to put it in a zip file, you might have some issues with the old format. With a new format, which is called zip64, essentially what, uh, what they've done was that they have grafted additional context on top of the zip format 
And in these additional fields, they use wider fields, so wider subfields, where initially it might be a four byte or eight byte field. Now they use an eight byte or 16 byte field. So they can hold more content and so a larger number of files and larger sized files can then be fitted into zip64. So this is what, what you're limited uh, on. Firstly, the format. If you use zip64, then you shouldn't really be limited on format in all practical cases, but you're still going to be limited on disk. And we're not even talking about network yet, but just limited on disk. Um, so I posted something on Elixir forum, on Pacmatic. And somebody responded basically saying they've got the same use case where uh, they have to make archives of large video files and they constantly run into disk utilization issues before they decided to make their own library. So disk utilization is an issue because especially in a concurrent environment like a web server, you don't necessarily know how many compressed bundles are you going to serve at any given time. You don't know how many will be requested concurrently and you can't really just anticipate all of that and make a queue. So you may have a situation where suddenly multiple customers try to download their own bundles and this results in a rush, um, in a rush to download these constituent files on disk and result in disk exhaustion or exhaustion of available free disk space. That's a problem you'd have at the server, right? Yes, that, that would be the problem you have on the server. And obviously another thing is that if you were to go to Amazon EC2 and you were to spin up an EC2 instance, then by default, you probably get a smaller volume like eight gigabytes perhaps if you don't do anything special. And you can't do very much in 80 gigabytes. So by default, servers aren't usually configured in a way, especially with cloud storage being so popular, servers are usually not configured in a way that um, all the constituent files in the archive that we practically requested by the users could fit on disk. And you don't necessarily want to just go out and provision disk space for all the servers you've got because then the space will be unused most of the time and it'll be a waste of money. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier and in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. 
So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So is this like, like you were mentioning, and we have a link to this in the show notes, this uh, Elixir forum post you were mentioning. So if I can ask the kind of uh, nature of the application that you're doing, is this like a video editing kind of thing? Or are, are these like video assets or art assets or something where you have so many large files? Um, our files aren't particularly large, but I do know that, again, the use case lends itself very well to Pacmatic. Our use cases usually within our applications are on the realm of like five to 10 megabytes per file. It's just that we usually have a lot of files. Or alternatively, uh, we also have another situation where we have a lot of files that need to go into the archive, but these files do not exist. These files are all generated ahead of time. So this is kind of a different class of problem where you're essentially generating a bundle out of thin air or out of whatever you've got in the database. So, so the traditional way to do it would be to run a loop across all the entries. And for each entry you're interested in, make a PDF or make, make a docx or make a whatever file and put all of them in a temporary area on disk and zip and all up after you're done. Mm -hmm. So again, you could see that in this situation, you have the same issue with disk utilization. And also you have another issue, which is now you have a lot of inventory on disk. And this inventory would be useless until you hit um, the last generation process that you need to do. So if you got something like, uh, let's say you, you have 100,000 you need to generate, but your disk only holds 50, then you won't even know that this whole batch wouldn't complete until you've run half of it. So it doesn't fail early. It fails quite late. And when it fails, it takes all the available space with it. So yeah, that's another situation. So can I use Pacmatic then uh, on my web server? So like, I liked your idea, like what you're saying, it's saying like maybe I'm generating PDFs or something like that. Because I know, I think of like Google Docs where you can say, I want to download like all of the, like it's in, I know it's Gmail, right? I, someone has sent me an email with a bunch of uh, photo attachments and each, each photo could be, you know, several megabytes in size. And I can say download all and it generates a zip file. Mm -hmm. So is that, I could use Pacmatic in some similar way where it's kind of on the fly, uh, fetching and streaming the pieces together to generate a zip file without having to have all of them together on the server at the same time? Yes. And more importantly, Pacmatic allows the user to immediately obtain confirmation of the initiation of the process. And I'll put it in simpler terms. Let's say uh, you live, uh, you live in year 1995. So when you turn on your computer, you, you turn, turn it on and you go make a cup of coffee. But when you return, the computer is already booted and you have this conviction when you're making the coffee that the computer is going to boot, even, even though it's going to take a while. So it's the same with Pacmatic. The download may take a while due to, well, due to networking limitations. Maybe you've got a one megabit network at home, whatever. But when you click the download button, you immediately start download. So you know it's running and you can just wait for it to complete. While in reality for Google Docs in particular, there is an issue with Google Docs that we sometimes run into. 
where if you've got a 200-page document, uh, we do have 200-page documents in Google Docs. Um, you go to the Google Docs and you click export, then nothing happens, nothing happens at all for about 30 seconds, 40 seconds, a minute or two, two minutes, and suddenly a download starts, but it, it starts and, and it downloads very quickly. But the thing is, uh, you have to sit there for a minute or two to wait for it to pop up. So, so that's the issue with lack of acknowledgement of the initiation of process, because without this kind of acknowledgement, you're kind of left waiting for some kind of feedback from the application. And that means that you're waiting, waiting busily. It's busy wait instead of, you know, you're not really waiting because you're in context switch and do something else and you know it's downloading. So with Packmatic, you can, you can basically serve the, serve the string immediately and start each bit of source reading as the stream is, uh, is being processed and later after the stream has started being downloaded from. Nice. So, so let's say you've got a gigabit uh, Ethernet connection. So you download at, um, let's say one gigabyte, no, actually one eighth gigabyte per second. And you have a like eight gigabyte file. So it takes eight seconds, yeah? So with Packmatic, when you click download, um, you immediately start the download and eight seconds later, it completes with a server side solution where the file is first put on the server. Assuming the server has infinite bandwidth, then, then it doesn't matter. But if the server doesn't have, doesn't have infinite bandwidth, then you have to first wait until the file has been put on the server and then the server has compressed. Then you start your download. And that kind of lag time sometimes in our testing could be atrocious. And this is incidentally why some application developers have resorted to using job queues or background task queues to do the exports because they know the, ex the export generation process usually takes quite a bit of time and the user doesn't wish to wait. So their workaround to this problem usually entails um, a notice or a message telling the user the download has been queued in the background and will be emailed to you later. So I guess it sounds like it's possible then, and I didn't know this, to send a zip file like in chunks, in a chunked response before the entire zip is, is compressed? Like you're lazily sending bits of the zip file before all of the files have been compressed? Um, yes, because basically we're streaming the zip file in a stream. So um, we use the stream, the word stream as a verb in SNL here. So the zip file itself, can be basically is very amenable to streaming because when you build a zip file, you actually don't start with a catalog or some kind of header or some kind of index. Usually certain, certain, kind of, certain kinds of files like an optimized PDF, optimized for web viewing would have the catalog before everything else. Uh, but a zip file doesn't need that. Before, before everything else. And this is good because it means that you can start building and sending bits of a zip file to the client before you actually have an idea of what actually is in it. So when you send a zip file, you first send, uh, for each file, you send a little bit of information on, on the upcoming file and you send all the data. And then optionally, you send a data descriptor uh, at the end of that, uh, of that file's contents. And then you repeat for, for another file. And once you have sent all the files, you can then send the cat catalog or in zip parlance, it's called 
uh, central directory. The central directory actually is at the, uh, the tail of a zip file. And the best part of our zip file is that you can actually insert an arbitrary number of bytes between the files as long as you don't refer to that range in the central directory. So this is even better because then you can use that to implement a very loosey-goosey encoder. For example, download from these 100 links and give, give the content of these 100 links to me in a zip file, but if the download of any link fails, skip it. You can do that because, well, you just buffer, buffer and, buffer and send and buffer and send, and you skip the, uh, skip the entries for, for, the, for the files that have failed to completely download. So yeah, we kind of abused the zip file specification for this. That's cool. Because I know uh, back in, you, you mentioned like earlier versions of the zip file format. And I know uh, in the past, you know, like some of these zip uh, or like download accelerators uh, would, you know, download the header of the zip file. So then they could start doing parallel requests for like resuming chunks of it. So I didn't realize that the, the header that contains all of the, like the, the layout uh, could be at the end too. So that's really cool. That makes a lot more sense than for being able to stream it th that way. Yeah, I, I believe zip file headers are always at the end, actually. So okay. it doesn't have anything the other end because zip files start with like, you know, PK, the signature, and then that's immediately signature for, for the file header. So uh, the only way for, for these kinds of download managers to work would be to use a content length response header in HTTP. So what I love about this, uh, this library and this solution is that you're able to you know, you, you've got just, it's kind of make what everything you said clear to you, dear listener, just kind of so you can see the benefits of how you can use this. Um, so I can have, uh, I want to give a good user experience. So I want to give immediate feedback when they say, I want to download these three gigabytes of assets uh, and that, you know, all, a number of different files that are all combined together. I want to download all of this. You get immediate feedback. It starts to download immediately, but I don't have to have uh, I don't have to like consume all the server resources. Like I could be downloading, you know, pulling this from S3 buckets, uh, all these different files and streaming them as I go and, and then kind of concatenating it all into a stream, like a, a zipped compressed stream as, as it passes through the server. Do I have that right? Yes, you have it correct. Yes. I think it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. So in Pacmatic, uh, there's a design uh, element called a manifest. So the manifest is a data structure that you build before you start the pragmatic stream. And within a manifest, you have a bunch of entries. You must have at least one entry. Uh, if there's no entry, uh, the stream is going to fail. So each entry refers to one file. So in each entry, you specify the source and specify the path in the compressed bundle or the archive and any additional information like the timestamp to use for that entry. Because some people are very, very particular about timestamps. So when they open an archive, they want to see that each element inside that archive has a right timestamp. So you must have your timestamps correct. And so you build up the manifest and you send a manifest to Pacmatic or you give it to Pacmatic, you tell Pacmatic, hey, build a string based on this manifest. And, and you get back a string. It's just an Elixir stream, which conforms to the Enum protocol. 
and then you take the string and you send it to plug. And by using plug send chunked, you can start serving contents of that string. And as the user obtains more data from the string, the string pulls more data from the stream encoder. And the encoder goes through all the sources involved and step-by-step step builds the output. So uh, one thing that I saw while just Googling around is that the zip library in Erlang OTP does not, it like specifically calls out that it does not do zip 64. Um, so what did, like, how did you get around that um, to be able to do zip 64? Um, we don't use a zip library in Erlang. So in fact, what we ended up with was first, we look at the specification and we read it multiple times, you know, from, from top to bottom, from bottom to top. And we ended up with a bunch of Elixir data structures called structs. So we started modeling the contents or the constituent parts in structs. And we wrote some kind of protocol for struct encoding. And we basically built our own encoding mechanism. So we emit the zip uh, format, so to say, ourselves in Pacmatic without using the Erlang zip library. Um, zip64, again, um, the zip format is a modern engineering marvel simply because it has been around for so long and it's managed to stay alive. So ZIP64 isn't a totally new format. It's an addition, an extension to the existing ZIP specification with additional fields. And in a ZIP format, each field has a signature. So usually sensible applications that need to deal with ZIP files will ignore any field with a signature that they don't understand. Because for, for these fields especially, there's a fixed format to these fields, where first you got a signature and then a bunch of other information, including how long the field itself is. So if you come across a field you don't understand, you still have a good chance of understanding how long it is. So you can skip that part of the file and carry on with the next part. So ZIP64 archives are actually to a certain degree backwards compatible. And we exploited this fact to the limit. So although we emit zip64 files, um, certain applications can read them even though they don't support zip64. So basically our, there's another reason why we don't do decoding, just encoding, because we kind of within the context of Pacmatic treat the zip file format as a write-only format. So we don't ever, ever plan to ingest zip files ever again. And if we have to do it, we probably will do it on the client. So as long as a zip file opens up properly on High Sierra and on Mojave uh, macOS and on Windows 10 natively in Windows Explorer and in 7-zip and in WinRAR, then it's good. We don't care about anything else, including our long zip library. Yeah, that's um, basically it. And also, if zip info doesn't complain about it, then, then we're good. One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there, 
We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. Extremely cool that you guys built your own zip encoding in Elixir instead of just leveraging what was there for Erlang. So it sounds like getting zip64 format support was like really, really important because I assume it's, you know, it's going to be a lot more work to like rebuild zip encoding yourself. So was that tough to get buy-in on? Was everybody just like, yes, we need the zip64? What was that decision like? Um, it was more like I am a particularly lazy person and I don't ever want to get a support ticket regarding why large files don't work. So I rather sorted now than having to sort it later at a random time because uh, as you know, if you don't schedule maintenance, then other people will schedule it for you. So since Zip64 is available, it is currently kind of supported and it provides a very good path forward we should just get it in. So, so that's our rationale. And it's like, well, we have already gone through the length of writing our own encoder. So what's more about Zip64? It's like a few additional structs. So and, as a, as a follow-up to that, I was just curious. Um, so you solved this problem that you had internally. You said, you know, we, we don't want to have to deal with these support issues continually. We can solve this and just make it be done. Uh, but then there's the, the added work uh, of actually making it be an open source project and getting approval to do that because you know you could you you know there could be an argument to say well this is something that's uh, you know it's uh, private IP to the company so I was just curious as to how you went about uh, getting this to be open sourced. Um, corporate open source itself is a very big topic and it almost warrants its own podcast. So um, I'll touch on I'll touch upon it briefly. So I think culturally, the company I work for has a very strong education technology focus. And we were very, very, very fortunate in, in that there is actually an existing open source process where if you fill out the form correctly and the, uh, the code is reviewed correctly, then the code can be released. Obviously, it's not our core IP. Our core IP actually is in an application not these um, external libraries. In fact, we want to hold as few private internal libraries as possible because that's, um, that's a distraction. So yeah, so open sourcing it was more or less a matter of time. And obviously, I don't want to put out something that's wonky or doesn't work properly. So it kind of, uh, so Pacmatic actually was testing internally for a few months before the whole open source thing actually happened. Well, that's cool. I appreciate uh, the effort to make something like that be available. So it's just, it's enri it enriches the entire ecosystem. So I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, before we transition to picks, I had one last question. And it's just like, 
uh, as you're building this, was there any part in particular that you were particularly proud of? Hmm. It's a good question because I'm not particularly proud of it. <laughs> I'm just very happy that I don't have to do it again. <laughs> yeah, because um, I spent like a whole week staring at the specification. I mean, obviously outside of my normal duties, just staring at the specification, figuring out why it doesn't work or something, or where I got my bits misaligned. So yeah, I'm just happy that it's over. <laughs> so going forward then, um... Uh, how do you if, how do you see the maintenance of this library uh, going and and uh, your involvement with that? So I'd say uh, one thing that we're currently working on is support for custom sources. So in Packmatic, you can specify the sources, and we currently support pulling from a random source, which generates random bytes, or pulling from a file already on disk, or pulling from a URL or pulling from a function which resolves to a URL or file source for dynamically generated content. But obviously, if you use Packmatic directly in your application, then why can't you just generate the bytes there? So we're adding support for custom sources, and that support has actually landed in the develop branch, I believe, or on a feature branch, and will be merged into the trunk soon. We have another bit of work in progress, which is progress reporting, finally. So the idea of progress reporting is to provide more granular feedback on what the library is doing. So it's a, it's a very simple mechanism where you can tell the encoder via the encoding options to send a particular PID messages as it progresses. So then from that process, which is listening for the messages. You can get messages such as encoding started, encoding started for this file, encoding completed for this file, et cetera, et cetera, including how many bytes were read and how many bytes are to be read by estimate. Uh, that bit actually requires additional design changes to the sources. So sources can provide more information to Packmatic's encoder regarding how many bytes are there total to be read. So it's, a fun change, but it's on the back burner for now. It'll probably come out later. Awesome. Well, I, I look forward to hearing more about uh, kind of some of the ad advances and I, some of those, I, I think it's awesome, like the custom sources where I can just like URL, where I can point it to like maybe an S3 bucket or something and have it stream something down. That's, that's yeah. cool stuff. So this is very good for use in something which I can call it the strangler pattern, where you might have an existing application that has a background job for downloading. But at the same time, you already have ability to serve each constituent file over an API. So what you can then do is you build up a manifest full of these uh, URIs. Each URI points to, uh, points to a resource which will be generated by the API and let Packmatic do the calls to the API. Hmm. And in this way, you can essentially gain the benefit of Packmatic without having to rewrite the rest of your application by strangling it from the outside. Nice. Yeah, this is something else that we're working on. It's called a Packmatic service, where instead of building a Packmatic manifest using Elixir code and building an Elixir structure, you write a JSON object and send it to an API, which spits out a URL that you give to the customer. And from the URL, 
when the customer navigates to that URL, Packmetric will serve the string with all the content that you have specified prior. Very cool. Well, we are bumping up to the end of our time. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and kind of jump on here and help explain this library and, and the awesome benefits that uh, I can reap from this. So let's go ahead and transition to picks. Eric, do you have one? Uh, yeah, so since this is the, the new year, uh, I guess people like to start doing uh, resolutions and whatnot. Um, so one thing I started at the, actually at the end of December um, was, was trying to actually do the, a bullet journal <laughs> um, and not just do my own weird thing. Um, so I, I think it's been pretty successful. Um, I've enjoyed it. I know a lot of other people enjoy that as well. So uh, this is a, a way of doing like a to-do list in a, a physical notebook um, and whatnot. So I'll, there's the link and uh, yeah, give it a shot. Cool. Sophie, how about you? Yeah, I have two actually. So um, I came across the uh, Groxio, Groxio Live View course that uh, Bruce Tate and the folks at Groxio have put out. It's super fun. You build Tetris. Uh, I love Tetris. It's like my number one time waster. And it's just a really nice way to kind of dig into Live View and how it works and, you know, build a game, which is always good. It's only 10 bucks. And all of the proceeds, I understand, go to support the Groxio mentoring and diversity programs which are super awesome you can check them out so i am going to share this link with y'all here and uh my second pick is so for uh for christmas a friend of mine got me a wonderful gift which i absolutely love and uh i'll show it to you guys although anyone listening at home can't see it a giant mug with a golden letter s on it and it's just really fun to drink out of a giant mug that is monogrammed so that everyone knows that it belongs to you so i looked it up and uh you can get them at williams sonoma and i just recommend it cool yeah i'd seen that bruce tate uh had had that had launched that little uh kind of training product that's i think it's really great um so one i had was uh, recently, I was working on a personal project and I was doing, if you're familiar with the library, WK HTML to PDF, it's a, it's kind of an older library. It's, it's been around a long time and still there are some limitations that it has and it's using Qt, uh, the Qt uh, framework. Uh, it's cross-platform, but it, and it, yeah, so there's, there's situations where I think it's an awesome tool and there's situations where it might not be the best fit for you. And so it caused me to reassess and kind of see what other options there were. And one I found was called Wheezy Print. And so I'll drop a link to that. It's something I thought was interesting. It's, um, you can take a look at the docs, but it's, it is a different approach to doing a lot of the similar things. Uh, so it caused me to uh, end up, you know, it basically wants to work off of a single HTML file to generate uh, a, a PDF from it instead of uh, WKHTML can do a series of files. Uh, so they do work differently. And it, uh, Wheezy Print is a Python library. And so it, some of the differences were I, I ended up, for my need, I ended up staying with WKHTML to PDF. And I run that out of a Docker container. And, and it's at, partly because it's faster and uh, it gave me a better output uh, for what I was needing. But I was impressed with how the, the Python one worked because uh, it, it, just, it, was a, it was a neat library. So I think for simpler things like invoices or um, 
re, you know, receipts or reports, things like that, it could be a great option. So I would just say, you know, consider looking at Wheezy Print if that's something that you're trying to look at, at those types of PDFs. All right, Evedne, how about you? So uh, currently I have two picks. So the first one is a book. It's called Small Memory Software. So Small Memory Software is um, a book regarding how to run software for systems with limited memory, obviously. And I, I found the book very interesting. So yeah, if anybody's interested, they should read it. I have a second pick. Um, it's actually an Elixir library called Croxy, C-H-R-O-X-Y. So Croxy is a Chrome, headless Chrome service library. And the main benefit of Croxy is that it supervises Chrome for you. So you can interact with it over the remote debugging protocol quite easily and control it however you want it. Uh, so control it in whatever way you want, including uh, testing your application or perhaps if there is support in the protocol, make Chrome generated PDF version of the website it's looking at. So yeah, Croxy provides you this building block that you can use. Very cool. I had not seen that before. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I had a lot of fun talking with you and learning about this library that you've put a lot of effort and time into, and I appreciate you sharing that with the community. Um, if people would like to follow you online or get in touch with you, how should they do that? So people can follow me on Twitter. It's on twitter.com slash And I also have a GitHub account, same name. All right. And we will have those in the show notes to make sure uh, you find those there. All right, well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Yay! Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.